Um, turn over to your in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three. This morning we're talking about the benefits of knowing Christ. And uh, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you haven't had your sins forgiven, you don't have a personal relationship with Him, uh, you can listen today and, and realize that there's some incredible benefits to knowing our, our Lord and Savior. And for those of us that do know Him, um, uh, it's just kind of an encouraging uh, message that we have today. This is a very personal passage in, in Philippians. Um, we talked about it being uh, Paul's testimony. And um, the word I appears a number of times throughout this text here this morning in verses 8 to 11. And even the word my appears several times. So he's talking in the first person. And it's a very personal uh, viewpoint of, of Paul's own testimony. And uh, it kind of gives us a little indicator of what was going on in Paul's heart at the time of his conversion. Um, and as we, we look at this a little more uh, specifically, uh, I, I just want a way of introduction even before we read our, our text there. Um, uh, well, I'll go ahead and read Philippians here, and then I want you to turn over to Matthew 16. But let's, let's read in, in Philippians here, just verses, eight, uh, or verses 7 through 11. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, and not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, and if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16. And just kind of keep those thoughts in the back of your mind as we read those. Matthew 16. And look at verse 25. This is probably one of the greatest statements that came out of the mouth of our Lord. Um, in verse uh, 25 and 26. Let's pick it up in verse 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desire, desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then focus on verse 25 and 26. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? and yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You see there, Jesus is talking about an exchange. Something exchanged hands. Something happened. There was an exchange. He was talking about losing something to gain something. And that's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Philippians. Our Lord said that if you want to gain your soul, it will cost you your life. If you desire to save your life, it will cost you your soul. In other words, if you hold on to the things that are very precious to us in this world in which we live, um, we have a tendency to reject the things that are precious to God. And it could cost us our eternal soul. There is an eternity. We don't just go to the grave and, and just you know lay there. 
There is a, a life hereafter. And there's one of two places people will spend it. Either in heaven, in glory, with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because they've trusted in the atonement, they've trusted in the, the work of Christ on the cross. They put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They'll be in heaven. But for those who trust in their own works or their own religion or, or anything else, there's a place called hell and it's a very real place. And sometimes we don't like to talk about it because it's not a lot of fun to talk about hell. But it's a very real place. And it's, it's a place that exists for those who reject Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because there has to be punishment for sin. Because we serve a, a righteous God, a holy God. If he wasn't holy, if he wasn't righteous, he could maybe overlook it and say, well, you know, the people that rejected my son, I'll just send them to heaven anyway. But he can't do that. You wouldn't have any respect for a judge if you went before the judge and, and uh, you know, someone broke into your house and, and stole items that were precious to you and you went to court, they caught the guy and you went to the, the uh, courthouse to see this guy prosecuted for, for burglary and, and stealing things from your home. And... The judge at the end of the trial said, you know what, you're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty, you know you're guilty. But you know what, I'm just going to let you go. Because I feel like I'm a nice guy today. You would stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not, that's not right. See, God has to punish sin. And there's a place called hell, and that's where people go who reject the offer of forgiveness. Who reject the payment that Christ has made. And so... What Jesus is saying here is that, you know what? Sometimes in lives we tend to hold on to things a little too tightly. And there has to be an exchange of hands. And there's an exchange here, and it's a very significant principle. There's an exchange of all that I am for all that Christ is. That's what salvation is all about. There's an exchange of all my religious activities. All the things that I write down in my book that I do, that I think are good, the ceremonies and the righteous works and all that stuff i got to trash all that, throw it on the rubbish heap, and turn to Christ. Because if I'm trusting in that, if I'm trusting in my religious activities or ceremonies or prayer beads or prayer, any of that stuff, then I'm not trusting in Christ. And for salvation to be authentic, so for salvation to be real, we have to have our trust solely based in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you maybe have spent all your lives being raised up in a religious home. Some of you have maybe just dedicated your, you know, you pray every day, you do all those things. I'm not saying those things are bad. But if those things is where your trust is, then you're missing the point. Our trust, our faith needs to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wise person looks at everything in life, everything they've accumulated, all the things that they value, and they look at the value of knowing Christ and they say, you know what, I'm willing to give all this up. I'm willing to give it all up. The person who comes to God is the person who's willing to pay whatever God requires, whatever the price is, whatever the cost the person willing to abandon everything to Christ. And if you look through the Gospels, those are the people that Jesus called. Those are the people that followed Christ. I mean, we're right back to where we began last week in Matthew 13 about the treasure and the great pearl. 
They were willing to give up everything because they found this incredible treasure. They found this one pearl that was of, of great value and they were willing to forsake all the riches for that one pearl. See, a lot of people today have to ask the question, have to answer the question, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? How much? What's it worth to you? I mean, the rich young ruler was faced with the same dilemma. You know the story. Came to Jesus and said, hey, this is what you have. This is what you possess. Are you willing to give it all for Christ? Jesus asked him that question. And you remember, he was not. It was too high. The, the price was too high. So he kept his possessions, but he lost his eternal soul. He made a foolish decision. See, every person has to face the choice of what they're going to do with Christ. When they're confronted with Christ, what's the reaction going to be? Are they going to exchange what they have for all that Christ is? Or are they going to hold on to what they have and walk away from Christ? Because you can't have both. You can't have both. And what Paul is saying as we turn back to Philippians, just in review of last week, you remember, we, he said, hey, I, I've had all these things. I've had things that I inherited. I had, I had rituals. I had race. I had rank. I was of the, the nation of Israel. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And there were things that I even gained in my life, Paul said, that I achieved. That he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he wasn't just raised in a Hebrew family and went along with it. He actually lived it out. Some of you here this morning maybe have raised in a Christian family. Some of you young people may be raised in a Christian home. You know, it's not good enough that your parents are Christians. Don't think for a minute that you're getting to heaven because your parents live a Christian life. You're accountable for your own soul. You're accountable for what you do when you're confronted with Christ. So it's not... By tradition, Paul said. It's not, salvation is not by religion. It's not by even being sincere. You can be very sincere about something and be sincerely wrong. And he even went on and he said salvation is not by the law. It's not by having your own righteousness. Because he was blameless when it came to the law, he says. And he said, I looked at all those things, and remember, we, we looked at like an Excel document, and we said there's a, a loss column and a profit column. And what he thought was profit in his life, when he came into an encounter, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, all those things that he thought were good and were gaining him a favor with God, and he was being religious and doing all these good things, he had to look at those and say, you know what, I have to move these from the profit column over to the loss column. Because they're not worth anything before a holy God. I need to have my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 9, where we read about Saul's conversion. I mean, Paul was not just always this, you know, Christian man. He was, he was of, of Jewish background. And he, he lived his faith, faith in a very real way. He believed so much that his way was the right way that he went out and he opposed anybody that stood in his way. It'd be kind of like if, if 
you know, all of a sudden there was some, some cult that kind of raised its head here in Redwood City and started to take over the whole city. Hopefully believers would raise up and say, hey, wait a minute, this is a threat. These people are closing down churches. You know, if that's the case, pretty soon they'll make it to our church and they'll close us down. We're going to stand up for what's right because we believe in Christ. Well, Paul had that same passion. Paul had that same uh, just drive for his own faith, for Judaism. And so when he saw Christ come on the scene and he saw the Christians start to raise up, he thought, you know what, I have to do what's right. I have to take care of these people before they threaten my faith. So he began to kill Christians. Not in a malicious way. I mean, I don't know how you kill somebody. It's not in a malicious way. But what I mean is, there wasn't like a, you know, I just hate these people. He really viewed them as a threat to his belief system. And it wasn't just a, you know, I think I'll kill that guy because I feel like it. No, he really believed deep down in his heart he was doing the right thing. And in Acts chapter 9, it said, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so he went to the high priest and he asked for uh, letters and authority um, from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So he found any belongings to the way, any belonging to the way. And uh, that's what they called Christianity. They called it the way back then. Because Jesus said, I am the way. And he found these, both men and women, and he sa it says there in Acts that Paul went and he bound them and brought them to Jerusalem. In other words, he went and he got the authority and he was killing these people. And it came about in, in verse 3 there, chapter 9, as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. Now he's on this mission, you know, he's got this mindset. He's going to take care of these Christians. And suddenly, the Bible says, a light from heaven flashed all around him. And it says he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I never have. Just never happened. I have to tell you this story. Is Mary here this morning? Mary Pollock? Okay, good. Um, you know, I was up on the roof a couple weeks ago up by the steeple there and I was replacing the lights for the uh, steeple because the bulbs keep on burning out. And they're kind of expensive, so I thought, well, I'll just replace the whole fixture so I don't have to order these special ones. I can just go down to Home Depot. So I was up there putting these things on there. And you're up there pretty high, you know. And uh, it's a nice day, a little windy, but it was nice. And I was wiring these things up, and uh, it's kind of on my last one there. And I looked down, and here's, here's Mary. This is Pollock on the other side of the street. I'm facing this way, okay. She's over by Dorothy's house. And she's pushing her grocery cart. She's just minding her own business, nice day. And so, being devious as I am, I walked over to the edge, literally to the edge of the roof, and I went, Mary. She stopped dead in her tracks. She was like, she's looking like this. So I said, Mary Pollux. She's looking all around. She begins to look up, and, and, uh, Finally, I said, I'm up here, you know. She looked up and saw me. You're crazy. Get down from there. You know. You're going to kill yourself. And so I asked her the next week. I think it was on a Wednesday night. She was here. And I said, so Mary, I said, uh, did you think that was God? No, I didn't think it was God, you know. And she had a fun time with it. But, you know, I've never had an encounter like Saul. I mean, he hears this voice. 
and this light, and he drops to the ground, and he hears this voice, who, you know, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who art thou, Lord? This is what Saul replied. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I mean, talking about an encounter with the living Lord. Now, here on the Damascus Road, the Apostle Paul is confronted with Christ, with the living Christ. Even though he was, you know, resurrected and he went to heaven, he made a special trip back just for Paul. And up to this point, Paul was looking at his life and he was looking at all the things he was doing for his faith and he was thinking, hey, you know what? This is all profit. This is all earning me favor before God. Because I'm committed to my Judaism. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm the nation of Israel. I'm circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Pharisee. I'm all these things. You know, I'm, I'm at the highest level of my game as far as religion is concerned. And he comes into an encounter with the living Lord. And he was counting all that as profit. And he was looking at Christ as, you know, oh, that's, that's crazy. That's why he was killing Christians. He didn't believe in Christ. He didn't believe that... What he stood for was true. All of his religious achievements he thought were assets and he looked at Christ as a liability. That's kind of a danger zone. You don't go there. We've got to get rid of Christ. That's why he was killing Christians. But now he meets him face to face. The living Lord. He doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't, as he's writing Acts, anything about what's going on inside of Paul. Doesn't say anything about it. He simply records what Paul, what Saul heard, what he, what he saw, and uh, what took place. But when you read down through chapter 9, it's obvious that Paul was converted. There was obviously something different about him. By the time you get down to verse 11, Saul is praying. By the time you get to verse 15, he's called an apostle. By the time you get to verse 20, he's proclaiming Jesus everywhere and that he's the Son of God. So this encounter with the living Lord caused somewhat of a change in this guy's life. He was converted. But it doesn't say anything about what he was thinking in his mind. It doesn't say anything what was going on inside of Paul's head in Acts. So you might look at that and say, well, you know what? Conversion is just kind of this supernatural event. And, uh, you know, you're just walking along in life and all of a sudden, boom, God hits you and you're converted. You don't have a clue what happened. You don't have anything. You're, all you know is all of a sudden you're saved. If you just have the, the account in Acts, that might be what you think. Pretty soon you're an apostle and boy, you're just, you know, going at it. But that's not true. That's not how salvation happens. I didn't wake up one morning and go, I'm a Christian now. Wow, this is great. It doesn't happen that way. Don't get me wrong, God, salvation is a sovereign act that God performs in the human heart. But our, our, our human faculties aren't just forgotten about. And as you look in, in Philippians, you really have what's going on inside of Paul's mind. 
what's going on inside his heart. You have the internal response to that encounter with Christ that happened in the book of Acts on the Damascus Road as it's recorded there. And you say, well, what was going on in his heart when he ran into Christ? You might ask, did he understand who Christ claimed to be? Sure he did. Think about it. What was he doing? He was out killing Christians. He knew exactly who Christ claimed to be. He understood clearly who he claimed to be. He understood that he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to die as a sacrifice for sin. He claimed to rise from the dead. He knew all this. He knew the facts. He also knew that that Christians preached a certain kind of message. He knew that they, they preached a, a gospel of grace, not a gospel of the law. See, that was something he was familiar with, the law. He kept the law. He was blameless. See, factually, Saul understood who Christ was. He understood the facts of his life. He also understood the facts of the gospel that were being preached by Christians all around him. And that's why he persecuted him, because he thought that that was heresy, according to his faith. So he understood it. He knew all about Christ, and he knew the gospel. But that's different. That's totally different than being confronted by the living Lord, isn't it? See, he knew all that stuff, but it wasn't until the Damascus Road that Jesus stopped him in his tracks when he was confronted by Christ. And the Holy Spirit began to illuminate his heart and to take that, that, those blinders off his eyes that were there. And he began to consider Christ for the first time. Someone wrote this, Salvation is a sovereign act of God by which he invades the sinner's darkness, gives him light, and saves him. That being said, salvation does not annihilate, destroy, or bypass the human faculties that we have. It stimulates them to do the right thing. And so we have in Philippians this section of, of Scripture that we're looking at this morning. Really, what's going on in Paul's mind? What's going on in his emotions and his will on the inside of, of these days when, when he was on the road at Damascus? What was he experiencing? What was he feeling? Well, if you look at Philippians 3, verses 3 and 4, you see this is a guy that put all his confidence in his flesh. He put, in, he put all his confidence in his willing and his ability to perform, do the right thing. His religion, his sincerity, his race, his tribe, his rank, his self-righteousness according to the law, that's where all his confidence was. And I'm sure that he believed that he was saved. He believed that he was doing the right thing because of his religious privilege and his religious achievement in his faith. And now all of a sudden he's walking down the Damascus Road and he confronts the living Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God all of a sudden gives him a spirit of understanding and he sees Christ for the first time as a real valuable asset, not a liability. He sees Christ for the first time as that real pearl, that real gem, that real treasure. 
And he looks at his life and he says, you know what? All this stuff that I've been building up and I've been putting my faith in for years, i got to move it from the profit column over to the loss column. If I'm going to embrace Christ. He understood that. And he's willing to throw it all into a bag and trash it on the trash heap. All those things that we talked about last week. He's willing to give it up. Because he understood the value of knowing Christ. See, he made that exchange that Jesus talked about. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Paul gave everything. Everything. He didn't hold back anything. Paul sold all to buy that treasure, to, to buy that pearl, to, buy, to, to hang on to Christ, to make that exchange happen. That's why he says there in verse 7, I count as lost everything that I once counted as gain when I saw Christ. Because God showed me so clearly the glories of Christ. Because God showed me so clearly that only Christ could save. That's what God showed Paul. And only Christ could provide the way to God's kingdom. And only Christ could provide eternal life. See, it's not through a church. It's not through this church. It's not through any other church. That has nothing to do with your personal relationship, your personal accountability before a holy God. See, if that were the case, I would say, hey, you know why You need to join this church. Because if you join this church, then you'll be saved. Well, that's heresy. This church is just a church. There's lots of different churches. It's not about what church you belong to. It's not about what building you go to worship on a Sunday morning. It's about, do you know the purpose of that worship? Do you know the Savior? Do you know the Lord? If you know Him personally... All this stuff is just kind of external trappings to your faith. See, in our society, we grow into this mentality that we go to church. So Sunday morning, what do we do? We put on our clothes, hopefully take a shower, put on our clothes, make ourselves smell nice, look nice, everything. Go to church. How do you act in church? Well, there's a certain way you act in church. You know, you don't walk into church. Hey, what's up? Oh, I'm here. I don't like to be here. You, you wouldn't do that. You know, I mean, I know you've had the little fights on the way to church. And my wife and I have had little fights on the way to church. And, you know, we get out of the car, slam the door, and, oh, hi. That just happens. That's our flesh. That's, that's just being transparent. I mean, you know, that'd be crazy to say, oh, no, we're always like this. No, we're not. You know, sometimes, I and mean, you may not know this, but your pastor's got an anger problem sometimes. And I remember, you know, I can recount several times. I, I can't even count them. Sometimes they're so nervous. My wife turns to me and goes, Shh, don't be so intense. The neighbors may hear you. <laughs> so we got those new windows over there, you know. I thought they were supposed to keep that inside. <laughs> but, you know... The point of it is here is that, you know, we, we put all these trappings on our faith. And, and the reality is this. You know what? You're accountable to God for your own soul. And it doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't, you know, none of those things. Hey, we're, we're glad you're here. Don't get me wrong. And we think that we're trying to do the best to preach God's word and to glorify him and in different ways. 
But you know what? It's not about a church. It's about knowing Him in a personal way. And that's why Paul could say, you know what? All the stuff that I was holding on to, it doesn't compare to knowing Him personally. If you're counting on anything for your salvation other than Christ, I would have to say you're not saved. You're not. You're deceived. If you're counting on anything other than Christ to save you, anything, then you're deceived. Because salvation isn't anything but Christ. It's very simple. It's not difficult. It's not rocket science. I mean, I'm sure God could have made it very difficult for us to come to know Him. I mean, you look at some of the hoops and things that they had to jump through in the Old Testament. And that didn't even work. But they, you know, they still had to do it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm not up here cutting the head off a chicken, sprinkling you with chicken blood or something weird like that. I mean, you know, he made it very simple. He gave his son. And we're stained with, with sin. There's not a person in this auditorium today that can say, oh, I never sin. I'm perfect. But what are you going to do with that sin when you stand before a holy God? You have to give account. And God is just. He can't just turn his back and go, okay, I'm going to forgive you. The sin has to be paid for. It has to be a satisfaction for that sin. And Christ was that satisfaction. And that's why when Paul, Saul, ran into Christ on Damascus Road, he looked at it and said, man, I give up. I give everything. I count it all as rubbish because I can know the Savior. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Other than the name... Jesus Christ. I mean, it sounds like a narrow message. It sounds like it's kind of, you know, well, what about all the, the good people out there, the religious people that are doing so many good things? They're helping hungry people and they're helping the homeless and they're doing all these things. Those are all good things. Don't get me wrong. We should have community involvement. Uh, it would be that our church would have more of that. But on the other hand, if they're trusting in that for their salvation, then that good thing they're doing becomes a bad thing. Because all of a sudden, the motivation is changed. They're trying to earn God's favor by doing something. That's why Paul says, you know what? Don't put your confidence in the flesh. He's kind of telling us, I've been there, done that, doesn't work. You know, I was circumcised the eighth day, nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a whole thing. He goes right down through the list. And he says, if anybody's to put their confidence in the flesh, it would be me. But he says, you know what? I had to give it all up. And he says, for all these years, my salvation is built on basic ritual, race, rank, tradition, religion, sincerity, and my works. And then Paul says, basically, he met Christ. And he was confronted with the living Lord. And he saw it all as a liability. All of a sudden, it all went to the lost column. And he realized, you know what? I have Christ in my prophet column now. There's no way I would ever go back. You know, you notice that Paul didn't say, I had some things that were good. But Christ is better. He didn't say that. He said, everything I had is what? It's for the dung, for the you know manure pile. That's what he counted it. He didn't say some of it was good. He said all of it was bad. Liabilities are bad. 
When you're putting your faith in anything other than Christ, that's a liability because the Word of God says that our faith should only be put in the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that good stuff that maybe you think you're doing in your own life is really bad if you're doing it to earn God's favor. Now, this morning, we want to look at quickly five things that Paul gained by knowing Christ. Five things that he gained by knowing Christ. You know, there's a lot of, of people in our world today that are, that are very religious people. Let's just call them religious people. It doesn't matter what they believe, they're just religious. They have some form of religion in their life. And I don't know about you, but when I share Christ with people, some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are the people who are religious. Because they're deceived. They think that because they go to a building or that because they do something, that somehow that saves them. And it seems like the more religious they are, the more sincere they are, and the more they're stuck in their tradition of the religion, and the more ceremonies and all this stuff, and the harder they are to reach. Well, why is that? It's because their confidence is in all that stuff. And God has to strip away all that stuff. And I'm just here to tell you, all that stuff is not good stuff. It's bad stuff when it keeps you from Christ. Religion can damn the soul. False religion really deceives the mind and damns the soul. And so Paul looked at his life and he said, all this stuff is trash. Now let me tell you what I got. Let me tell you some of the things that after I kind of put off all these things that Christ blessed me with. There's five things. The first one is salvation begins with the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And these are throughout the whole New Testament. I mean, and we're not going to go into these in depth because we'd be here forever. Um, but the first thing Paul gained is he gained the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And just to let you know, God is impressed with the things we're going to talk about today. This impresses him. If you have these things in your life, God is looking down on you and saying, I'm impressed. Because these things don't come from you. They come from God. See, the things we talked about last week, all the things that Paul was storing up, those are things that he generated. Those are things that he inherited. And God was saying, I'm not impressed with that. I'm impressed with what I can give you. And that's what we want to look at this morning. The first one is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I count all things lost, for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. Count all things as rubbish. Count all things in the lost column because I have the opportunity to know Christ. It says right there the surpassing value, the excellency of knowing Christ. See, that's, that's the key to understanding this, is that when you know Christ, you realize that, you realize that that's, that's the main thing. So we look at our lives and say, yeah, I'd gladly get rid of all this stuff if I could know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords in a personal way. Knowing Christ far surpasses all that other stuff. In the New American Standard, it, it says there are more than that in verse 8. Yet indeed, 
And every translation almost says it differently because it's, it's, it's a bunch of uh, Greek participles just kind of thrown in there. And when you translate it, it doesn't make any sense. It's almost like he couldn't describe what he wanted to tell us. And if you were going to actually translate the literal Greek, here's what it would say. But rather, therefore, at least even. That's why they say they're yet indeed or, you know, um, more than that. It's almost like he's saying, I've counted everything that was gained to me as loss for the sake of Christ, but rather, therefore, at least even. In other words, by the way, beyond all those things... I count to be loss. Not only those things, but he uses those, that phrase there, those things in verse 7, and he refers back to verses 5 and 6 that we talked about. It's not only those things that I see as loss, but I see everything as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. In other words, you can't trust in anything. Not just those things, he's saying, but, but anything. You can't trust in your own wisdom. You can't trust in your own intellect. You can't trust in your own mind, your own religious instincts. You can't trust in anything else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I count them all as a liability. Don't put your trust in those things. They're not going to save you. And what he's talking about is any kind of allegiance, any kind of a, an act that would, would think that, that you would think is some kind of meritorious before God that would earn God's favor. He says, that's a loss. Whenever a religious man thinks, he can boast about anything. Stop and think about it. It could even happen to Christians. Sometimes. You get your priorities in the wrong spot and pretty soon praising God turns into this proud, arrogant, telling everybody, well, I spend two, three hours a morning in prayer, and I've been fasting for four days, and I've memorized eight scriptures this week, and I've been at all the Bible studies, and oh yeah, I've witnessed to everybody I've seen this week. My answer is, who cares? I mean, that's great you're doing those things. But if you're telling me that, I'm going, what's your motivation in telling me that? And you think that I'm going to look at you like you're holier because you do those things? That's not true. That's not true at all. Not that you shouldn't do those things. Those are wonderful things. But if you're in the mindset that you've got to kind of brag about your religious activities, you better stop and say, what's my motivation here? Because that's the opposite of what Jesus said to do. So you don't go out on the corner and put ashes on your head and say, hey, look at me. Like some religious clown. You do it as unto the Lord. And that doesn't matter whether it's, it's prayer or, or Bible study or witnessing or service. You do it as unto the Lord. I mean, who gets all the credit when you have an effective Bible study? Who gets all the credit when you witness to somebody and, and they actually get saved? Who gets all the credit when you're praying and your prayers are answered? If you say 
Well, I do, don't I? You're wrong. God gets the credit. God always gets the credit. Because it's God who did it through His Spirit. And Paul's saying here, look, anything I achieved in the past, anything that I did in the past that I tried to earn favor with God, you know what? It's in the lost column. And he says in verse 8, I am counting. That's in the, the, the present tense. So it's not, not that I have counted. That's a, a perfect tense verb. But he says here in verse 8, I am counting. In other words, I've counted everything lost, but now I'm continually counting everything else in my life as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. Not just those things I built up, but everything. It just can't compare with Christ. That's what he's saying. There's nothing on the same plane. There's no achievement, no religious activity. So he's really saying, I, I, I want to continue to resist this urge, this temptation to rely on my own works rather than God's grace for my standing. Because the minute you begin to rely on your own works, you're, you're standing on sand. Pretty soon that wave's going to come and you're going to just sink down because there's no foundation. And he says, well, why does he do that in verse 8? He says, because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord. Because of the fact that I know Christ, and that surpasses everything else. He was totally overwhelmed on the Damascus Road. And now he really understands what it means to know Christ. That word, they're knowing Christ, has the idea to know experientially, know experimentally, to know in a personal way where there's personal involvement. I mean, we all know who President Bush is. We all know that. I mean, there probably wouldn't be even the young children know that here today. Who's the President of the United States? President George Bush. But do you know George Bush? Can you go to the White House and say, yeah, you know, uh, Steve's here to see you. Oh, let him right in. I don't think so. You'd be like, get out of here, you know, who you think you are. See, those who are Christians, true believers, know Christ. They don't know about Christ. They know Christ. John 10. It's a great chapter. The Good Shepherd. Jesus says, I know my sheep. And they what? They know me. Knowing Christ. When Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3, his prayer for believers, those who were alive and those who were yet to be born and redeemed, he says this, this is eternal life that they may know thee. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. See, eternal life is connected with knowing God by knowing Christ. That's how God laid it out. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, it says, We know that the Son of God has come to give us understanding in order that we may know Him, who is true, even Jesus Christ. It's not knowing about him intellectually. It's not knowing about him, you know, the facts about the gospel. But it's to know him experientially. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says, God is the one who has shown in our hearts. That's illumination. That's the Holy Spirit showing us, taking that veil off. And he, he goes on in verse 6, he says, To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Christ. See, God removes that veil so that our eyes can see. Paul's defining here the gospel and the work of the Spirit. And he says that God comes into the human heart and he shines that light that reveals the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when we know Christ, we know we're saved. 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I have what? Believed in. We can go through a lot of scriptures to basically make the point that salvation is a relationship in which I know Christ. You don't know about him, but you know him. You don't know the facts about him. You may know where he lived. You know how he died. You know all that stuff. But no, you know him in a personal way. That's very different than knowing about someone. Among the pagans in their culture back then, they referred to this knowledge as kind of an elevated, kind of a mystical experience with their deity. And they thought the best way to do this is to have a big drunken feast. And that's what they did. They'd get together and they'd just drink and drink and, and, and get totally drunk. And they thought that by that process, somehow they're elevating themselves up to their deity. And that's why in Ephesians 5, Paul speaks of that, the drunkenness. And, and uh, you know, even in our day and age, there's people that, you know, you ask some, uh, some people, wow, I wonder how that guy came up with that song. Oh, he was on LSD when he wrote that song. You know, they think that somehow by doing that, their, their, their creative nature is kind of uh, unbridled and they have more creativity, whatever it might be. Well, they felt the same thing back then. And these pagans used to do that. And they, they called that knowledge, that experiential knowledge, the same thing. They didn't want to just talk about their God. They wanted to know their God. And so they, they did this weird you know, feast thing where they would try to somehow get to know their God better. Well, what Paul is saying is that we should know Christ in an experiential way. We should know Christ in the same way, really, that, I mean, even in the Old Testament, this word is used not just in a way to know. It said Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. Now, it doesn't mean Adam knew who she was, obviously. It meant that Adam had a loving relationship with his wife and they bore a son. They knew each other. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. In other words, I have a bond of love with them. Jesus even said, depart from me, I never what? I never knew you. I never had a bond of love with you. So we have to come to the knowledge that Jesus is the Savior. That's his, his, his priestly role. Jesus Christ, he, that's the prophet. He's the messenger of God. And also that he's Lord. He's the King. That's what it means to know Christ. And that's the first thing, that's the first point in, in Paul's um, comments here. You have to know Christ. When you look at the New Testament, our relationship with Christ, it's always, it's always uh, referred to as being in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, you're in Him. Uh, Paul refers to that 164 times in his epistles, that we're in Christ. 
I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ what? Lives in me. So it's, it's, it's not I, but it's Christ who does this. I have the mind of Christ with that deep knowledge. And he's, Paul says, you know what? I'm going to count everything as loss to know my Savior. I'll exchange it. Secondly, these last four go kind of quickly. Salvation is not only the knowledge of Christ, but the righteousness of Christ. In verse 9, he says, And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I mean, that's what he did his whole adult life. He tried to earn righteousness with God by doing all these right things. He was one of the elite 6,000 Pharisees. That's a small number who believed that they could attain salvation by perfect adherence to the law of God. I mean, can you imagine if God said, yeah, I'll save you, but here, you got to do this first. And he gives you the law of God. I mean, we're not just talking the Ten Commandments here. I mean, can you imagine the burden that you would have to carry the rest of your life if you wanted to be saved? If God said, somehow, if, if you can do this, then you'll be saved. Even if it was just the Ten Commandments, we'd all blow it. We'd never make it. What kind of righteousness is that? That would be a performance-based righteousness. Romans 3.19 and 20 says, By the deeds of the flesh, or the deeds of the law, shall no flesh be justified. In other words, we're not justified before God by what we do. We're justified before God by what we trust in, by, by Christ. And Paul says, you know what? I'll exchange that whole lump of self-motivated righteousness in order to have a righteousness that comes from Christ. What is righteousness? What, what do we mean by that? It, it basically means to have a right standing before God. It means God accepts you. Well, how are you going to be accepted by God? By your own effort? By what you do? Are you going to be accepted by God because you're better than the person next to you? I don't think so. So you're going to be accepted by God when you take by faith the righteousness that He gives you because of what Christ did on the cross. God gives you Christ's righteousness. And we trust in that by faith. Faith is best described in this way. Faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter God's kingdom. That's what faith is. Faith is the confident, continuous confession of total dependence. It's like we were singing you know, this morning, that song, Breathe. When I first heard that song, I thought, what is this song about? Breathe. This is the air I breathe. Sounds like a weird song to be singing in church. And then I started realizing, you know what? What does that mean? This is the air I breathe. Without Christ, I have no hope. If somehow we sucked all the air out of this room right now, we'd be dead. No matter of minutes. Why? Because we need it. We're desperate for it. 
That should be the same passion that we have for Christ. The passion that we have to breathe every second when we take that breath and we exhale. Our body needs that. That's the desire that we should have for Christ. Thirdly, not only does he provide Christ's righteousness, but he provides the power of Christ. Look at verse 10. He says that I may know him, and it's an ongoing knowledge, and he's already started in that direction. It's kind of a, a deeper knowledge. And the power of his resurrection. In other words, I'll give up everything for the power of Christ. The power of his resurrection. You know, there's no power in the law. There's no power to overcome sin in our own flesh. There's no power for spiritual service in my flesh. There's no power for victory in my flesh. There's no power for witnessing in my flesh. And Paul says, that's how I've been operating. I've been trying to do all this stuff in the flesh, and now I'm willing to trade it all because I see the power of his resurrection. I mean, you stop and you think of all the miracles that Christ did, everything that he did in his ministry. If you had to narrow it down to one event that showed that he was truly powerful, it would have to be his resurrection. You can probably explain all the other stuff, but his resurrection, you can't explain that. That's true resurrection power. That's the power of God at work. And that same power is available to us to live the life that he's called us to live. That's the only way that we can conquer sin on a daily basis is to trust in the power of Christ. Fourth thing, salvation also brought him fellowship with Jesus Christ. He says that in verse 10. He says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When you're, when you're saved, somehow God supernaturally puts you in Christ and you die in Christ and you rise with him. That's what the Bible says. I don't know how it works, but that's what it says. That's why when you're saved, it's not going to be a, a bed of roses because we, we have fellowship in his suffering. We're going to have to suffer as believers. That's, that's just bottom line. Anybody that teaches anything else is heresy. I don't see Christ going around on the, you know, to, to everybody in the New Testament saying, oh yes, it's health, wealth, and prosperity. That's what you need to trust in. That's how you know God is blessing you. It's not true at all. Sometimes you have to suffer. Sometimes the things don't come as easy as it may to someone else. That's okay. That's what God has for you. That's his purpose in life. The fellowship of his sufferings. And the last thing, salvation results in the glory of Jesus Christ. He says there at the end in verse 11, he says, If by any other means I may attain to the resurrection uh, from the dead. You know, what else could I gain? I'm, gain I'm attaining resurrection. It almost sounds like he's a little insecure about it. He sits there, if by any means I may attain. It's humility is what it is. It never left him that he was unworthy. It never left him that he didn't deserve it. Paul wasn't standing there saying, oh yes, I'm, I'm the greatest person God ever saved. No, he was a very humble man. And what he's saying is, in the end, you know what? It's because of Christ's resurrection. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. He gets the honor. It's not me. 
Those are some of the things that you gain, some of the benefits. And we just scratch the surface of knowing Christ. That's the knowledge of Christ. We gain the righteousness of Christ. That's called justification. We gain the power of Christ. That's called sanctification. We gain the suffering with Christ. That's participation. And we even gain the glory of Christ. That's called glorification. I mean, you stop and you think, all those things are yours in Christ. Why would you want to hang on to anything over here? Doesn't make any sense to me. Didn't make any sense to Paul either. He gave it all up. And he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. And God changed him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we pray that as we bow our hearts and our heads before you, Lord, we, we know that nothing compares to knowing you. Lord, we thank you that for the illustration of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when he was saved and that encounter that he had with you. I'm sure that there wasn't a day in his life after that that he didn't thank you for that confrontation, for that encounter, for the exchange that was made. Lord, I pray that as believers we would never grow weary. We would never grow cold in our faith. We would never forget what we were saved from. Lord, we would never lose that passion to tell others that they too can have an encounter with Christ. He's there. He's waiting. You just bow your heart. You bow your knee before the Lord and Savior. He can forgive your sin. Not because of what you do, but because of His grace, because of His mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would make sure that we have the right columns in the right order. That our profit column isn't filled up with a bunch of stuff that we do. But it's only filled with Christ. Who is to us knowledge, righteousness, power, fellowship, and glory. And Father, we thank you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.